Our uh, study that we've been going through that we've been calling Matters of the Heart. We're looking at Jesus's, um, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, particularly where Jesus takes some of these larger kind of law requirements that everybody feels pretty good about adhering to, and he brings them down into the heart level, and in doing so, uh, really brings the weight of them uh, onto us. So if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you were here last week, Benji said that he needed to wear a suit in order to, uh, to be able to handle this passage appropriately. I probably should have worn one for this one as well because uh, it continues to be difficult. Uh, this is God's word, so listen attentively. Matthew 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 31. Actually, I'm going to do this. I'm going to scoot back and, and read from 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'm going to flip over to chapter 19 in Matthew as well. If you'd like uh, to turn your Bibles there as well, Jesus says some very similar things, and he spells it out uh, even in more detail. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, It's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, even when it's hard. We thank you for your word given to us as a light to our path. We thank you that your word is perfect, true, and good. Lord, we ask... um, that we would have our eyes opened and our ears unstopped and our hearts softened, that we might hear what you have to say to us. We come in a lot of different ways today. And we ask, Lord, that you, the one who knows exactly how we have come, would speak to us, speak to each of us, and show us what you want us to hear this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thomas Jefferson, you may have heard, had a, uh, a very notable Bible. 
In his Bible, he had taken some scissors and some glue and cut out the places in the Bible that he just didn't feel all that great about and glued over some others and he had shortened the Bible and just kind of edited it. it. And it was nice and concise and it was very easy to live with because none of the hard stuff that Jesus says was in Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Uh, The academic equivalent of that uh, is something that was started in the mid-80s called the Jesus Seminar. It was a group of biblical scholars who got together and their goal was to decide what they thought Jesus really said and did. And they took the Bible and, you know, metaphorically speaking, took out their scissors and they sliced and diced and they cut out the places that they thought were just a little bit too unbelievable for everybody else. So Jesus never fed 5,000. He never walked on water. He never raised Lazarus and he certainly was never raised himself. In fact, according to the Jesus Seminar, Jesus got killed not for proclaiming to be God, but actually just for being a nuisance. And the Romans decided that they would do away with him. Well, Jesus certainly was a nuisance to the people in his day. And in fact, if we could go about with some scissors and cut out some places in God's word, this would probably be one of the places I'd want to start. The whole of chapter 5 of Matthew is just stuff that I don't really want to read all that much. About my anger and how it's equivalent to murder. About how my lusts are equivalent to adultery. About how my view of marriage is oftentimes so much smaller than God's about how I'm supposed to actually turn away from one who attacks me rather than turn back and uh, abuse that person who has abused me. This is stuff that I just really would kind of rather not deal with. But one of the major foundations, actually, of our church is that when it comes to God's Word, we're not the ones who come with the scissors. God is. We come to God's Word as those who are under His authority. And we give him the right to take out the scissors and say, here's something in your life that I don't like. Here's actually something that I'd like to clip out. Here's something that I would like to deal with with you. And of course, the beautiful proclamation is that God does that in kind and gentle ways. That he is a loving surgeon. But he does take out that scalpel or those scissors and cut at us sometimes. This is one of the places where it can feel, we can feel the sting the, the biggest, where it can be the most painful for some of us. Now, again, this was always the case with God's word. It was always countercultural to some degree. In chapter 19, you heard Jesus talking to Pharisees, and one of the things that they said was, hey, we want to talk about divorce, and we want to talk about it on the grounds of what Moses allowed. Now, when you see in the New Testament somebody saying, here's what Moses said, what they mean is this is what the Old Testament law says. And they said the Old Testament law said that we could give our wives a certificate of divorce and then we could kind of be done with it. Well, we need a little bit of background on the Old Testament culture and how that law came into play. Remember, God rescued his people from Egypt, from slavery. He brought them in uh, to the desert. He was bringing them into this new land and that's where he gave them his law. And during that time, the culture, the broader kind of Mideastern culture there, was one that really devalued women and also devalued marriage. And so marriage was just kind of a free-for-all. It was a total mess. Uh, men, men who had really all of the power in the society were able to kind of take and dismiss wives as they pleased. And so any time kind of a wife displeased a man, he could just kind of send her away and he could move in and out of marriage really kind of at will. And what God's will, God's law does is it actually comes in and puts some restrictions on marriage, some boundaries. It elevates marriage far, far above what the culture had thought of it at the time. 
And it says, okay, let's put some boundaries here so that men can't just dismiss their wives any time they want to. You actually have to go through a process. There's a certificate. There's a legal process that has to happen. And you have to prove that there's something that's actually really wrong. So at the time, God's law elevated marriage far and above actually what the culture had thought of it. And it elevated the power of a woman in the marriage and in that society far above what the culture had deemed uh, to be right. Well, if you skip ahead to the New Testament, when Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, uh, similar things have have happened. We mentioned this earlier. I, I I said this word, transactional religion, earlier in our service. And that, in many ways, was kind of the religion of the day. It was done transactionally, meaning I bring my good things to God and my list of the things that I've done well, and then God accepts me. I can kind of be a part of his people because of the things that I've accomplished and the things that I have done. Well, of course, if you have kind of a transactional way of understanding things, usually you are going to figure out a way to work that transaction in your favor. And the rabbis of the day, the teachers of God's law of that time, had added to the written law with all kinds of oral tradition. And that oral tradition had become lifted even above the written law so that whatever the rabbis said was really what kind of happened in the religious culture of the day. And what they had said was they had started to to expand and expand and expand this law about marriage so that it really met what they wanted to do. And instead of elevating marriage above the culture, what they had done is they had brought it right back down to the cultural understanding. And so they had actually said things and written down things like, yeah, a man's got to give his wife her certificate of divorce, but really that can be for kind of anything. I mean, there was a law that if, if, if your wife burned your dinner, you could just be displeased with her and send her away. If you didn't like the things that she was saying to you or the way that she spoke to you, well, you could just get a divorce. If you found somebody else that you thought was more attractive, well, then you could be done with that one and move on to the next. So again, a great devaluing of women in that society and a great devaluing of marriage in that society as well. How about our culture? Are we anything like those cultures? Well, let me just say this, is that in our culture, thankfully, we do have a much higher view of a woman's value. That is something that we should be thankful about in our culture. But I would also argue that we have just as low a view in our culture of marriage. You can see that simply by the divorce statistics uh, in in America today. Uh, In 1970... Conservative hero Ronald Reagan was the first to sign into the law, into law the no-fault divorce in the state of California. Meaning that if you were to come for divorce uh, into the legal system, you did not have to bring any kind of reason that you were getting divorced. You could just do it for any reason, like she burned my dinner, or I didn't like the way she was talking to me, or I found someone else prettier. It actually put into legal practice uh, in our government the same kind of things that were happening in the first century in Jesus' time. We live in, in a world where our individual desires, where our individual pursuit of happiness is really paramount above anything else. Listen, listen to these recent numbers from a, from a recent poll. 84% of U.S. adults... And 66% of practicing Christians believe that the highest goal for life is to enjoy it as much as possible. That is the primary view of American adults and, according to this poll, the primary view even of American Christians. Uh, 
That the enjoyment of life to its greatest possibility is our primary goal. Listen to this one. 91% of U.S. adults and 76% of practicing Christians think that the best way to find yourself is to look inside yourself. 97% of U.S. adults and 91%, 91% of practicing Christians believe that you have to be true to yourself. The overwhelming understanding in our, in our culture is that it is my job and my greatest goal to get the most fulfillment out of life that I can, to pursue my own personal happiness. This is something that absolutely has infiltrated and changed the way that we think about marriage. What is one of the most popular shows on television these days? Men, you don't know, I'm sorry, but ladies, you do. It's The Bachelorette. It is incredibly popular, and it is a wonderful example of the way that our culture actually looks at marriage. The Bachelorette, if you don't know, is based on The Bachelor, which was one bachelor uh, has a choice of something like 20 women that he's going to choose. At the end of the show, he's going to, to marry one of them, or at least he's going to propose to one of them. Well, in The Bachelorette, they actually ended up taking, uh, the, I think, the final reject from The Bachelor and gave her all the power. And she, got, she gets to now choose these, out of these 20 men, who do I want to, uh, to propose to? Well, the entire premise of the show, again, is I have the power to choose and I will lay this kind of panoply of men out in front of me and decide who is the person that's going to make me the happiest. Who is the person that I'm going to get to fulfill my happiness the most with? Is it this man? Is it this man? Is it this one? And then she gets to choose and decide. The dominant understanding of marriage in our culture is that it is individually centered, it is a pursuit of our own happiness, our own pleasure, and if it makes sense for me to be happier with you, then fabulous. But what's the flip side of that? When I'm no longer happy, we no longer really have to be married. That's the dominant understanding. I'm not, I'm not sure that would be exp- uh, really said by a lot of people in our culture, but actually what's behind it, the numbers behind uh, these polls in our culture, would say that that's actually the way that we think about marriage today. Into all of those contexts, both the Old Testament context, the New Testament context, and our cultural context, Jesus says these extremely weighty words. What Jesus gives is actually a picture of marriage that is radically different than any of those contexts. What Jesus says is that I'm going to take marriage now and elevate it higher than you have ever seen. Higher than your culture actually thinks of it. Higher than cultures before you have thought of it. I'm going to take marriage and as this quote at the beginning of of your worship bulletin says, build a wall around it, a firewall around it and stamp on that wall. Do not touch. Don't mess with this. I love it. What Jesus says in chapter 5 and in chapter 19, and really what the Bible says throughout, is that marriage, instead of being a self-serving way to fulfill my individual desire for happiness, is actually supposed to be a self-sacrificial way to fulfill my need for holiness. That God actually does something on me in marriage. That he is using my spouse to change me in deep ways. And that he is using me, strangely enough, to change her. That he is using us both to actually picture the gospel. That we are supposed to be submitting to one another. Laying down our lives for each other. And in doing so, we draw a picture for one another and for our children and for our neighbors of what the gospel looks like. 
That this is what Jesus has done for the church. That he's come to lay his life down for her and serve and love and do so in a self-sacrificial way. The picture that Jesus paints is one of beauty. It is one of sacrifice. It is one of difficulty at times. But it is one of enormous fruitfulness and prosperity. It is an elevated picture of marriage that we don't oftentimes get in our society. And it's a picture he paints that is supposed to be permanent. It's a picture that is supposed to last. What he says is that that's the way that our marriage is supposed to be until one person dies. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with these difficult words of Jesus that really fly in the face of what our culture oftentimes and what many of us probably oftentimes think about marriage? Well, let me first talk to you if you are single. If you are single, one of the things that's really helpful to keep in mind about marriage is that you need to actually get to know what the Bible's perspective on marriage is more so than your culture's perspective. Soak yourself in that rather than soaking yourself in the bachelorette. And that when the Lord does call you, if he does call you to marriage one day, then that will actually be the picture that you conform to. But here's the second thing, and I think something really important that I'd like to say to to the singles in the room, is that yes, the Bible values marriage and lifts it higher than our culture oftentimes does, but the Bible also values singleness. In valuing marriage, Jesus does not devalue singleness. In fact, he goes on to say in chapter 19 that there is a beautiful and a unique position for single people in the kingdom of God. Paul talks about that as well in his epistles. In fact, as a church, this is one of the things that we've done really poorly as the church in America. Is that we have for some reason communicated the way that you find a place in God's kingdom is that you get married and you have children and you become a family and that's how you have a place in God's kingdom. That's really hurtful, actually, to singles, and it's really not biblical. Because what God says is that there's a real and a fruitful and a wonderful place in his kingdom for those who are not married. So if you are not married, go ahead and take advantage of that. You're in a unique position to to proclaim the gospel in a unique way that married people cannot. And pray that if the Lord does call you to marriage, that it will be His view of marriage that you are called to and not our cultures. That's single people. Now, what if you're married? If you're married, honestly, uh, the application here is, is kind of simple. Jesus loves your marriage. And He wants you to love it. And He wants you to fight for it. And He wants you to work on it. And He wants you to be able to proclaim that, the gospel together to your spouse and through your spouse and together through your marriage to your neighbors and the people around you. He wants you to have a fruitful and beautiful marriage. He wants you to be happy even in that marriage. Just, you don't find it the way that our culture oftentimes says that you find it. So if you are married, look at this passage and see the way that Jesus elevates marriage and know that he loves your marriage and he wants it to be wonderful. All right, how about if you're divorced? Particularly even if you're divorced and remarried, like I know there are folks here who are. What do we do with this? I think oftentimes we, we want to skip over these kind of passages because sometimes um, they're just confusing or they cause pain or they cause guilt or shame. Well, if you are divorced and remarried, the first thing I want you to do is see the above comments that I said about marriage. 
Your marriage right now is the marriage that God cares about and he wants it to be beautiful. And he says that it is wonderful and he is calling you to make it as wonderful as he says it is. He values it deeply. The second thing is this. Is that just like all of these things that Jesus has laid out, it's helpful for us when we come to passages like this to take account of our lives. And if there is sin in our lives, in a past marriage, in a current marriage, you can be honest about that. You can be honest with the Lord about that. It is an opportunity for you to come and confess, to repent, and to rejoice in His forgiveness. And then third is this. I just want to say, um, you're not alone. Oftentimes I think folks who have been divorced can feel like they're second class citizens in the church. But really one of the things that happens in this passage, and the reason why I read the previous verses in chapter 5, is because Jesus says really clearly, hey, this is adultery. Guess what else he says though? Is that if you've looked at a woman lustfully, that's adultery too. That you can commit adultery in your heart the same way you can in your marriage. And in doing so, Jesus actually, he puts us all on the same level playing field. And he says, yeah, let's be honest about who we are. Let's be honest about our own sin. But let's be honest in a way that actually affects all of us. We're all in the same boat together. We are all ones with broken sexuality, with broken understandings of marriage, with broken understandings about how we even use our bodies and what they mean in our marriages. So you're not alone. We're all together in that. Here's the final thing that I want to just say to all of us. One of the things that was um, really kind of amazing that jumped out at me in this passage, and it takes a little digging, I think, to see it, but when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in chapter 19, they say, here's what Moses commanded. He said we could give a certificate of divorce, and Jesus inserts this idea that, no, God wants you to be married unless there has been sexual immorality, there's been adultery. It's interesting, actually, that Jesus inserts that clause, because that clause is not there in the Old Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament law, there, there's, uh, there's not something it says in God's law. Hey, except for in the case of adultery, you know, here's where marriage is permissible. There's a reason why that's not mentioned, though, in God's law. It's because the punishment for adultery was death. The death sentence was in place for both parties who committed adultery. So it wasn't part of the divorce proceedings because it was part of the death proceedings. It's amazing what Jesus actually does here. He is simultaneously deepening our understanding of our sin and of his law. He's bringing it to the heart level. But he's also, in some ways, seemingly loosening the restrictions. Now, is that because the death sentence is no longer in place? I actually don't think it is. I think what Jesus is doing here is he is saying, the death sentence is still there, but guess what? I'm going to take it. See, Jesus is teaching here, and his life, his ministry, and his death, and his resurrection, they're all together. So when he comes and he says, this is, this is what I want for your marriage, and this is what it means to actually work against that and to commit adultery, what he is saying in that same context is, and guess what? That death sentence that is due for adultery, that's mine. I'm taking it for you. That death sentence that is due for murderers, that you have committed in your anger and in your speech against one another, that's mine. I'm taking it for you. 
That death sentence that's there for those who retaliate against their brother. It's mine. I'm taking it. It's mine and I will take it for you. That is the mercy and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Given to murderously angry people like us. Given to lustfully adulterous people like us. Given to those who don't see the beauty and the elevated nature of marriage. People just like us. That is the love and mercy of our Lord. Will you come to that Lord today? Confessing our sins and clinging to Him by faith. We're going to spend a little bit of time considering that. We're going to spend a little time just just sitting for just a minute and considering the question of what does it mean for us in our own marriages, either past or present or future, to come to the Lord and to find our need in Him. We're also going to pass around a basket where you can put in an offering if you would like, if this is your church home. And if you're new, you can fill out one of those cards and drop it in the basket as well. We would love to be able to get in touch with you. Let's pray before we do. Our Lord and Father, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this beautiful picture that you have painted for us of marriage. And we thank you for what we see also in that picture. Because we see the good news. We see a husband who has come to lay himself down for his bride. We see a hero who has come to save us. We see a Savior who has come to give himself up for us. And Lord, we pray in that Savior's name, asking your help today. Amen.